Well, Father, we bow quietly and humbly before you, and it is with anticipation that we would take our Bibles to receive a word from you. Would you please encourage us now? Would you please strengthen us in our understanding of what it means to be in Christ and what it means to have been given that great gift at that first Christmas, a baby in a manger, God in the flesh, Jesus coming to save sinners. Father, we need your strength uh, during the hour. We need to just minimize our own fleshly distractions and we need to just let your spirit lead us and guide us and teach us. And thank you for the authority of your word and the instruction within it. And we apply ourselves to it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have been thinking about what makes Christmas special, and hence our sermon series this month on what really matters about Christmas. And I was trying to think about what was my favorite Christmas and why. And uh, one Christmas came to my mind, and early this morning I went down to my workshop and I um, dusted off an old toolbox that I received when I was uh, seven years old. It would have been the Christmas of 1967, I remember that my dad had spent uh, some hours in the garage and I knew that he was making something for us uh, for Christmas. And uh, my dad pastored a small church and money was always tight for us and my dad had ability to work with wood. And that Christmas, I remember receiving my very first toolbox. It's a little bit beat up, it's now my drill box and I've replaced the bottom in it and had to re-glue it a couple times. I remember that Christmas for a couple of reasons. One is because I really like getting my toolbox. I remember that there was snow on the ground that Christmas in northern Illinois, and I put it on my sled and I drug it all over the neighborhood so my buddies would see it, for one thing. And then I also remember that um, when my dad brought them in the house, one for my older brother and I, they were identical, um, just a simple plywood toolbox with uh, some handful of tools inside, that he put them in my mom and dad's bedroom and covered them with a blanket, and I remember sneaking in there and peeking. And it kind of ruined my Christmas because I had to fake my surprise and my joy at the tree when they were unveiled. Well, what makes Christmas special to you? Is it a certain gift? Is it a certain tradition? What is it that really matters about Christmas to you? I think that it is interesting how we fall into different traditions and we pay an awful lot of attention to things that when you stop and think about it, just really don't matter very much. It is kind of interesting to me that there are um, uh, almost, it seems like an undermining, isn't it? A scheme of Satan that in some of the areas that matter the most, we are the most distracted in our culture. Let me give you four C's that I'm reminded of that I think that Satan has made tremendous inroads. And the first one is, is creation. Doesn't, hasn't Satan done a great job with the greatest of schemes to distract people from the reality that we have a creator God and what an awesome scheme it was. How about this? Let's teach all our boys and girls that everything comes from nothing. And they all believe it. The most illogical thought in the world. Well, that's the first C, creation, highly distracted. The second C is Christmas. Hasn't he done a phenomenal job with a fat guy in a red suit and, you know, 
Aunt Matilda with no teeth or whatever and reindeer that fly of just totally, in our culture, turning our direction away from the reality that we are sinners and God has visited us with the solution. Well, not only that, um, how about Calvary? Hasn't he done a really good job of, of just turning our hearts and our minds away from Calvary? I got a great idea for this one. How about a bunny rabbit that lays chocolate eggs? And we'll all get excited about that. There's nothing dumber in the world than that concept. And it works masterfully. Isn't that amazing? One of the most crucial points in the timeline chart of all of history when Jesus Christ became sin for us and we're all chasing our little kids around after plastic eggs full of candy. What's that all about? The final one is his coming. Try to get people to care about his coming again. Well, nobody cares about that. It's like, ah, it's never going to happen. I just think it's interesting, isn't it? And, you know, um, we're kind of that way at our house, too. We get excited about things. We're exchanging gifts this year. We've, we've drawn names um, with my wife's side of the family, um, and I don't think it really even matters, does it, um, why we give gifts. We have to stop and think about why we give gifts. But um, I like it a lot, and... Um, this year, we simplified it, and so we're drawing names, and then we, we rolled this game cube that had letters all over it, and so we're all just, we drew names, so you only have to buy one gift, and the letter that came up on the game cube was, or die, was S, and so you have to buy a gift that starts with S, and so I'm optimistic, I'm, I'm optimistic, I think that, I think that shooting iron is a good one. Um, at least screwdriver set, right? That's pretty good, but I suspect I better prepare myself for something along the line of silk tie or socks, right? But I ask you, why do we even care? And what does it really have to do with Christmas? It really doesn't matter very much what's under our tree this year, does it? But can I suggest to you as you turn to Matthew's gospel in chapter 1 that what really matters is what was in the manger that very first Christmas. I don't mean to steal your joy and your homes and your traditions and those are great times and memorable times. But oh, that Christ would be the center of our Christmas because when we get right down to it, the crux of the whole matter At the point of the issue, what really matters about Christmas is Jesus, isn't it? It was the baby in the manger. That's what it's all about. Let's read Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 1. And let's just um, uh, use this as a springboard to understanding how valuable of a gift we received that first Christmas in a manger. It really makes silly anything that we might want, whether it be screwdrivers or socks under our tree today, when we really get a handle on these great gifts that God has given us in Christ that very first Christmas. Let's read this account, beginning with verse 18 in our Gospel of Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. We talked about the literal nature of that last week and the importance of the virgin birth. 
relating to the deity of Christ. And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. We get a glimpse of the character of Joseph here. You see in their culture and in this um, time under the law of Moses and in this tradition, there was a contractual agreement for the engagement time. It was a betrothal time. It was a time where Joseph had made a deal with Mary's father. He couldn't just walk away with it. It was in essence, walk away from it. It was in essence a done deal. And so when he found out during this testing and waiting period, and this was one of the primary reasons why they had a betrothal period, was to make sure that you know nothing inappropriate had been going on before the wedding night and that the 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 bride was pure and so forth. And so they made this arrangement. So to break an engagement, you couldn't just do like my sister did one time with a guy who she was engaged to and double-timed on her and take the ring and throw it at him and run home and cry for three days. You had to go through a time was actually kind of like a divorce proceeding. You had to proceed properly through proper channels to nullify this arrangement, and it was considered essentially a divorcing because the arrangement and the commitment for the marriage was already, it was something that was seen as a proper commitment. Joseph had a right to expose her publicly. Joseph had a right, technically, under the law of Moses, to bring her in the public square and call for her to be stoned. He certainly had a right to bring her into the public square and make sure that everybody knew that he was divorcing her, that he had nothing to do with her infidelity, and that this was not his baby um, that she found herself pregnant with, and that this was uh, a relationship that had fallen apart. It was over. You know, I think that Joseph really loved Mary. And Joseph was a gracious man. And look what it says. It says in the, in Matthew says, just in the King James, a righteous man, a man of character and spirituality. He cared about Mary. And I think that speaks so highly of him that he decided he wasn't going to make a public spectacle. He was just going to quietly terminate this relationship, let it go. I suspect that Joseph had a broken heart on this day. Very confused. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There it is again, the supernatural Holy Spirit impregnating of Mary, where God and man come together. The angel, unnamed in this passage, perhaps it was Gabriel, that one who stands in the presence of the Lord to do his bidding, but he communicates, whoever he was, this angel, and he says, she will give birth to a son, verse 21, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now notice his name, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We've been singing about that this morning. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name, the Lord saves, Jesus. I think that it's interesting that the passage seems to reflect that not only did Joseph not expose her publicly, 
But after the angel spoke to him and in faith he believed it with limited revelation, he understood that God was doing something special. He actually broke protocol and brought her to his home ahead of schedule and kept her in the home. My, how the community must have buzzed. What an interesting time. But what I want us to focus on in this passage is the point that is made so clearly that they were to name him a specific name. His name was to be Jesus. Uh, This is the idea of the name like a Joshua. Uh, Jesus, it was not an uncommon name, but notice the meaning of the name. The angel tells him, name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And the angel said, because he will save his people from their sins. It is in the name that we have the, the clue to the great gift that we find in the manger in Bethlehem. And I would like us to focus this morning, and we'll mention five, we'll probably look closely at four of the greatest gifts, four of the greatest gifts you could ever receive at Christmas. And they were all found wrapped up in a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. You see, we have a problem. The Bible makes clear that we have a problem. We're not going to take time to uncover all of it. We'll see it in part of our text this morning. We're going to be flipping around in our Bible a little bit here. We're going to do some Bible study. We're going to unfold what these gifts are found in Jesus, the one who saves us from our sin. What a significant gift. You see, the Bible makes clear, and in fact, this is a lot what the whole book of Romans is about, is that we are in a chair or on the stool of condemnation. All people everywhere are born sinners and they can do nothing about their sin. All right? If you think that's not true or you don't like it, you don't understand your Bible very well because the Bible makes that abundantly clear. And in fact, the entire Old Testament is all about the inadequacy of man when given an opportunity to try to reach God, how he cannot do it. He can't keep the law. He can't do enough sacrifices to shed enough blood to cover his sins before God on an annual feast basis. And ultimately, God is the only one who can save us. And that's the story of Christmas, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we're going to use this stool over here as where God is and his gifts. And it's going to duplicate God's chair or God's part of the plan in the manger. We'll reference it this side. And this side over here is man in his need. It's kind of like a dunce chair, isn't it? It's kind of like we're all in trouble. I know that's not what you do anymore. You don't put a pointed hat on and set the kid up next to the chalkboard, make him sit there through recess and lunch break and not be able to go use the bathroom because he's in big trouble. Why? Because the whole class is in trouble when it comes to our standing before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the result of that sin or the wages of that sin is always death. We have a problem. We can't fix that problem. And that's why, as we do our Bible study this morning, I want you to realize what a phenomenal gift it was that when God, out of his love, driven by his kindness and his love, created a way for us to get off the dunce chair, to get out of the seat of condemnation. Because there is nothing we could do on our own to get out of this chair. 
So let's explore these gifts. We're going to, as I said, do a little bit of Bible study and be careful not to let your eyes roll when I list off these gifts because they are church words. Some of you don't like church words and you think it doesn't matter and it deals with doctrine and theology and another great myth is that uh, doctrine and theology doesn't matter and the bottom line is it, it, it matters completely. It's what gives us our understanding of who God is and how he's communicated to us and what our problem is and what we're going to do about our problem. And so I've put some gifts together. Really, Janet did. A couple of them are real, and they're pretend, of course. But I want you to stick with me, and we're going to name these gifts. But before we name our gifts and work through our little theological list of the greatest gifts that God has given us, and all are found at Bethlehem in a manger, I want you to memorize a verse with me this morning. And it's over in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. It's only take a minute, and uh, some of you say you can't memorize, but uh, give it a whirl and see what happens. The Apostle Paul is reinforcing what Joseph, what the angel told Joseph and how Joseph named Jesus, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The Lord saves sinners. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And this was evidently, at this time, taken from either a hymn, a stanza of a hymn that the early church sang, or some kind of a creed that they recited. And the Apostle Paul references it like this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. I'm using the NIV, so you have to memorize a verse out of the NIV here this morning. 1 Timothy 1.15. Let me repeat the opening phrase. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Okay, this is, it is a reliable, true thing, and it deserves full acceptance. That is, you need to embrace this truth. It is real. And here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world. That's Bethlehem, isn't it? came into the world, the entry point, to do what? To save sinners. He goes on to say, of whom I'm the worst. We're going to leave that part off. So let's get the first part down. Let's break it in half. Let me remind you, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Will you say that with me? Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Let's say it again. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. You better believe it. And this is what it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Ready? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now let's say the whole thing. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And it is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's exactly what the angel told Joseph. And it's exactly why they named him Jesus. He came to save sinners, and it's a good thing he did. Because why? Because we're stuck on this chair of condemnation and we can't get off the wages of our sin is death. We're born this way. We're sinful and dead in our trespasses. We needed help, didn't we? And so the first of some of the greatest gifts you could ever receive is found in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. The first of this gift is Don't let your eyes roll. The gift of redemption. Will you say that word with me? Redemption. The gift of redemption. It's it's an awesome gift. The gifts even get better. 
And let me explain it to you. And let's look and see if we find in the manger in Bethlehem the gift of redemption. And let me help you understand these great gifts that are wrapped up in the sum of our salvation so that you can, A, either worship the Lord at a more meaningful level this Christmas if you're a born-again Christian and saved, or perhaps you need to examine your own heart this morning and recognize whether or not you have ever received these gifts into your own life. What it is you're depending upon to get out of the chair, the dunce chair, the chair of condemnation, the sinner's seat. Galatians chapter 4 is where we find the first of these gifts. We're going to find actually the first of two gifts here. And uh, we want to read, um, go right to the point in chapter 4 and notice and and keep your eyes open so that you can see the manger. Okay, Galatians 4 beginning with verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. Isn't that Bethlehem? Isn't that the manger right there? And when the time had fully come, you see, you have to recognize that we're coming off 400 silent years. The prophets of old had spoken. And what's represented on those blank pages between your Old Testament and your New Testament, when you go from Malachi to Matthew, is 400 silent years. God has not spoken. And now in his sovereign oversight of the plan of salvation, and now on his timeline, it is just the right time, and it is time for God to put on flesh to become fully human, but to be fully God so that he is an adequate representation for the world before a holy, righteous God. And one of the first things he's going to say here is that he does this for our redemption. Look what he says. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, all right, under the law of Moses, Jesus was born at that time still. He had to, he's the only one who ever kept all the law. Everybody else was proven in their sinfulness by not keeping the law. But look why he was sent. To redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. There it is, our redemption. Why did he come? Why did he give us this first gift? He came and it's the gift of our Redemption, it's a beautiful gift. Let me explain what it means. The best way we can understand it is by going back in the timeline of our own history, which we all know kind of well is the Civil War era when slavery was the issue, was one of the key issues. And you have a slave who had no rights. You had a slave, and can't you picture, shackled in in iron and chains and standing there in disgraceful humility and not even treated as a human, not even considered by law to be human. And what a disgraceful slice of American history it is. And certainly uh, the blood was shed for that sin, partly, as Abraham Lincoln says. But there he stood, and a plantation owner comes, and he wants to buy a slave. And he looks him over, and he wants to see if he has any abscessed teeth, and he wants to see if he is strong, if he's going to be able to work, and if he has a runny ear, and just what he's like. And he says, I will buy that one. And he purchases the slave. All right? But then, okay, and we're going to 
kind of bridge over now to the, to the use of the word redemption. He purchases that slave so he has full rights of him. He owns him. But then instead of taking him home, making him go into the slave quarters, he brings him home and he says to him and he unlocks the shackles and he says, I have purchased you. You were locked up in slavery. You had no rights. You were part of a system of brokenness and defeat and you couldn't free yourself from it, but I have purchased you, and I now free you from it. You are redeemed. I have provided redemption for you. The idea of redemption then, let's parallel it over to the spiritual bridge, is that I am a slavery to my sin. I can't get out of my sin. I can't do anything about it. It's as though I'm locked in shackles. There is nothing that man can do to get out of his own sin. But God, on the timeline of his sovereign oversight, said, now is the time. And driven by only his love and his kindness, his love was so great that he said, I will buy you out of slavery. The thing that's interesting is that he didn't use money. Will you turn in your Bibles further towards the back of the Bible to where those books that get hard to find, okay, um, Hebrews and James and then First Peter chapter 1 and notice how this reality of redemption that started in the manger points to the cross. All right? It is part of an, of a, of an action that was completed at the cross and Peter talks about it like this in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Take a look at what it says. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Look how Peter describes redemption. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, all right? So in Adam, all die. You couldn't get out of that empty way of life condemned in the sinner's chair, but it was not silver or gold that released you. Notice what it says. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, and so forth. What did God do? God allowed his own son to come to go up to the slaves that were locked up and bound in sin and he redeemed them out. He purchased them off the block of slavery and he released them and he did it. He paid the price with his, the blood of his own son. That's why we sing songs about the precious blood and the precious fountain filled with blood because that was the ante, that was the payment. All right, that redeemed us, that got us out of the chair. So if you're taking notes and you want to write down about the first gift, which is, say redemption, redemption, the gift of redemption, it means this. Here's what to be redeemed means. It means to liberate from captivity, to set free from bondage or slavery by the paying of a price. Along with that, it guarantees that there is no threat to return to the slavery of the past or the slave market of sin because we are now the sole possession of he who bought us with his own son's blood. See, he owns us. We are his possession. We are redeemed off the slave market. And not only that, we don't have to be afraid of going back to it. But let's take our analogy a little bit farther and figure out what the next gift is in this passage. 
Let's go back to our Civil War slave and plantation owner. And he's got this young man home and he's unshackled him and he showed him his papers of freedom and he's told him, I want you to live as a free man and I have purchased you and I have the right to set you free and you are totally free, but not only that, I want you to come over here and we've met with my attorney today and I am going to make you now a son equal with my boys here in my home. The second gift that we have, and this is also in Galatians, and I really like this one, so it's going to be this big pretty one, is the precious gift of adoption. The precious gift of adoption. And we see this in a manger. Let me show it to you in Galatians 4 here. Let's continue this passage and just finish it. The reality of what we're reading, let's reread verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son... Born of a woman, this is Galatians 4, 4. Born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. Okay, why did he send her, his baby Jesus? What was represented in there? And First Peter says the blood at the cross to provide redemption, to buy us out of the slavery market of sin. But it doesn't stop there. To redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of of sons. Yeah, that's why we like to sing that kind of corny tune that the Gaithers put together about joined heirs with Jesus as we travel along. Do you realize what he's saying here? Not only were you stuck in the chair of condemnation, not only were you helpless to help yourself, but because he loved us, he sent his son to come redeem us with his own blood. Jesus bought us out of sin, but it doesn't stop there. He invited us into his house and God the Father signed the adoption papers and made us equal with Jesus in his eyes as an heir of salvation. That's why Hebrews chapter 1 references Jesus as our brother. That doesn't make sense. It's not fair. That's craziness. That's what a great gift it is. You You want a set of screwdrivers for Christmas? Go ahead. I'm really glad that in Bethlehem that I was able to get redeemed and get adopted. And it's just a marvelous moment if you've ever been there. And uh, the judge looks at you and they have some legal talk. And one of the things that you affirm publicly is that you now understand that this child is of equal standing with any child born in your home. Equal rights of inheritance. Equal right to bear your name. And then it's really neat. Then you get a letter and a folder and an envelope in the mail and you've got a brand new birth certificate for this adopted child. And guess who it says the parents are on their birth date? Born to... Guess who is your heavenly father when you've been adopted? You're in the family. You're equal heir with Jesus, a joint heir with Christ. The rights of inheritance of all that Christ has are your rights. It's hard for us to grasp what one of the realities when we die and get to go to heaven, and yes, we get to go, will be the dawning of the reality of all of the riches that are in Christ that we get to participate in. It has started now. We're just slow of mind and thick of skull to grasp it and find it in a reality there. Well, it doesn't stop there. Let's move on. Okay, so the first gift, say redemption. The gift of? Second gift, say adoption. The gift of? 
All right, gift number one, the gift of redemption, the gift of adoption. Redemption, being purchased off the slave market of sin and set free. Somebody paid a price. I'm now owned by them. But he didn't stop there. He invited me into my home and he adopted me. He, he made me, instead of property, he made me family. That's great, isn't it? That's great. Well, let's go to 1 John chapter 4 and let's continue opening our gifts that we find in a manger. And uh, you're going to really like these two gifts. Um, or this gift here. It's a great gift. It's the hardest word that we have to introduce to you this morning on our gift list. Is 1 John chapter 4. And let's just go right to verse 9. I need you to know that these gifts are difficult to open. Uh, multiple. It's difficult to open multiple gifts at the same time because it's almost endless, the discovery of digging into the Word and finding out the truth. This would be a good reason why to take a Bible Doctrine Overview class in our Evening Bible Institute, for example, where you can study and really dig in and have to do some reading and write some papers on these topics and expand your insight and your understanding of your own salvation. It would be very valuable when you get the chance to do that. It's worth the commitment. 1 John chapter 4 the epistle of 1 John chapter 4, and look at verse 9. Now notice, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. That's Bethlehem, isn't it? That's the manger, right? Don't you see Christmas here? How did God show his love? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that God, he loved us and sent his son, as the NIV translates the next phrase in the Greek, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I like to use the old King James word, and it's the word propitiation. Some of you have that in your Bible, don't you? It's a great word, isn't it? Do you like to say that word? The propitiation. Do you what the world does that mean? Well, let me help you understand what propitiation means. It is this. When we are on the seat of condemnation and dead in trespasses and sin, we are dealing with a heavenly Father and a holy God who is infinitely holy. He is infinitely just, all right? And he cannot look at sin. Not only that, there is a penalty for sin. There is a consequence for sin. Remember the verse we often use in Romans is, the wages of sin is death. There has to be a payment. There has to be a penalty. You see, and when you, when you study it and you look at God's character and his attributes, his holiness and his justice demand a satisfaction for this offense. He has been offended by our sin. We have turned our back on him. We have all gone our own way and we, he can't just ignore it. You've broken the law. You're a sinful, dirty, rotten sinner. And so the problem is always, and we talk about this a lot, but do you realize you're stuck here? You've offended a holy and righteous God. He's not just a little bit holy. He's infinitely holy. He's infinitely just. You can't even grasp how holy he is. You can't even grasp the reality of how he cannot look at sin. He's that big. He's that infinite. And you're stuck in your chair of condemnation, and you can't do anything to make him like you. You're dead. You can't breathe. You can't move. You're stuck in the mire. And so it says, this is love. Let me define love for you, John says. 
Love is how he showed us by sending his son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, verse 10, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to do what? To be the propitiation, to do what? To satisfy his wrath. You might almost think of it, but you have to be careful not to make a mistake of misunderstanding propitiation. It's as though God, and in a proper sense, there is like an anger against sin. All right? And Jesus came and he paid the price for our sin through the shedding of his blood. God was motivated in his love for us to send his own son to solve our problem, a problem we couldn't solve. And then Jesus, in becoming our sin bearer, is our propitiation. He in a sense, negotiates the deal of resolution. He appeases the wrath of a holy and righteous God. Okay? He takes away the anger of a righteous God. But you have to be careful. It's not as though God is always angry and then finally he turns it to love. God is infinitely loving at the same time that he's infinitely holy and just. And God's own love satisfies his own wrath. Isn't that a mind boggler? Did you get that? Because I didn't have anything could satisfy. So God's own love is the means by which he sent Jesus to the, to the manger to be the atoning sacrifice, the payment payer, the propitiation. It means he's the one who settled the wrath. He appeased the wrath of a holy and righteous God. He turned away his anger. And God did that out of his own love. God turned away his own wrath out of his own, by the means of his own love. That is really an amazing thing. We better keep that gift, hadn't we? The gift of propitiation. Propitiation is what? It is the appeasing or turning away, the satisfying, the settling of the debt of wrath that is owed to our sin. All right? What did I write down here? The holiness and justice of God demands a payment for the offense of sin. God's love provides the payment. The wrath of a holy God is satisfied in the work of Christ. That's propitiation. He took care of the wrath and the anger. He is the atoning sacrifice. He wiped it away. Gift number one was, say, redemption. Redemption. Gift number two was, say, adoption. Adoption. Gift number three was, say, propitiation. Don't you love that word? It's enough to make you want to become a theologian, isn't it? Propitiation. John uses that same word in 1 John 2, 2. Listen to what he says. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It doesn't mean that everybody got saved when Jesus went to the cross through the manger to be our propitiation, to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, but it means that everybody can be saved now that it was a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Okay, here's our last one. If you got a minute, you better stay because it's my favorite one. And then I'll just tell you the fifth one. I knew when I wrote five down, I wouldn't get to it. I don't know why I do that. I need counseling. (laughs) Will you turn to Romans chapter 8 and let's see if we can find the manger in Romans chapter 8. Let's see if we can find Bethlehem in Romans chapter 8. I think we can. I think we can. Another great gem of our salvation. They named him Jesus. Why? 
because he would do what? He would save his people from their sin. The Lord saves. That's what Jesus means. Paul, in arguing uh, some of the nuance of our salvation, brings out the point that therefore, chapter 8, verse 1, and this is a wonderful verse, you should underline it, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death, all right? I was under condemnation through the law of sin and death in this chair, but in Christ Jesus, I have what? I am no longer condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't give up. Keep with me. For what the law, verse 3, was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son. Is that Bethlehem? God did by sending His own Son. I think that's Bethlehem. I think that's the manger. In the likeness of sinful man. Isn't Isn't that the incarnation? He took upon flesh. He humbled Himself and became obedient even unto death and death on a cross. And look what he says. God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. All right? Let's just stop and flip back to page, the, the page before and look at chapter 5 and verse 1 and let me tell you the, the name of the gift that means no condemnation. Did you get that in chapter 8, verse 1? I can get out of this chair by faith in what Jesus Christ did when he came to the manger to go to the cross and and by faith in accepting the forgiveness of sin, I now am out of the chair of condemnation. And not only that, there is no condemnation allowed to come to me. That's a great gift. And we call that justification. We call that justification. That's the big $5 word. And it's found in chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. That's the same thing as meaning no condemnation. You are now reconciled. That's our fifth gift, by the way. Let's just move it out of here. Reconciled. That's two enemies who were at war with each other who have now reconciled. Okay? Reconciliation. Two juxtaposed positioned enemies who couldn't stand to look at each other now have come together and made peace. That's gift number five. And it's later. You read down through chapter five and see if you can find it. It's in verse 10. But stay with me right now because this is my favorite. And it's maybe the most important of the gifts as far as illustrating how wonderful this is over here compared to silk ties, socks, shooting irons, and sharp knives or anything else you want for Christmas. And they all sound good to me. This is gift number four. I already put gift number five, which was reconciliation. Gift number four is justification. Let's just review our gifts. Gift number one, redemption. Gift number two, in the family, adoption. Gift number three, propitiation. Gift number four, justification. It means that I no longer am condemned in any way. And maybe I can illustrate it like this. It's as though in heaven, everybody in the chair of condemnation, everybody in the chair of condemnation is kept in a file. Listen to me. If you were ever a bad sinner, you're going to really like this one. I'm talking about like a 19-year-old college sophomore that just did sin. 
And sometimes you think about it and you know you hurt people and you know you hurt yourself and you disapp- you d- you're going to really like this one. Because you see, you had a sin file. When God looked you up, when God looked you up in heaven and all the people who sat in that chair were in a file and it had your name on it, it had my name on it too. I was a sinner too. I got saved at age five and I still like this one. I was raised in a church culture, in a pastor's home, but I did bad things. One time I shot my mom with a piece of electrical conduit that I made a blowgun out of, and I put a piece of white chalk and a rag around it, and I shot her from the basement steps clear into the kitchen and burned her hip with it. And it really hurt her, because it was a a really good Boguanawana blowgun. Bad sin. Bad sin. One time I lit the field on fire with matches that Johnny Simon stole from S&S grocery store. Hey, when you're saved at age five, that's kind of bad. And furthermore, I'm not going to tell you the kind of stuff you want to know about my sin. It ain't none of your business. But I was saved at age five, raised in the church and brought up to preach in the church. And I still love justification because I had a sin file, because I was as much in the chair of condemnation as anybody else who ever sat in the chair of condemnation, but particularly if you did bad stuff. Listen, it was all on file. It was all right there, and you had a sin file, okay? But justification is this, okay? When you come to the knowledge, and God prompts your heart and opens your mind and you recognize your sin and you turn to what Christ did and by faith you receive this gift of salvation and you recognize that a baby came in the manger and that this was a great gift of God for salvation at the cross and that your sin could be forgiven and then one day you ask God by faith believing you acknowledge your sinfulness and you accepted the free gift of his salvation you were justified because justification is this it is the declaring righteous once and for all, of that individual who was sinful. It works like this. It's as though in heaven, your sin file with your name and everything, you know. And oh, Satan, remember, he's the accuser, right? Satan's the accuser. And so it's as though you're sitting before God. But let's get rid of this first before we do that. You accepted Christ and your sin is gone. Your sin is gone and it's a great thing, all right? And the accuser comes now. And he comes up to God and he says, Hey, how about that Tim Hellman? He's a dirty, rotten sinner. And Clint Cavender and Woody Beto, they're sinful. And God says, hey, Jesus. See, he's our advocate. Hey, Jesus, check that out. See if those guys are really sinners. But see, because of the blood of Christ and all the redemption that's gone on and the adoption that's gone on and the new life in Christ that's gone on, you've been declared righteous at the point of your salvation. Your sin file, the Bible uses phrases like it's buried in the depths of the deepest sea. He remembers it no more. It's as far as the east is from the west. And so when Satan, the accuser, comes and accuses God that you're not good enough to get into heaven and so forth, he bangs Jesus. Jesus is our advocate. He says, hey, check the sin file. See who's in the sin file. And he runs like a Nexus search or whatever it is, a Bluetooth search. I don't know the right words, whatever search he uses. And he, he does a search. And um, did I ever tell you I hate technology? And, and he does a search and Jesus says, look, the sin file is gone. The only place I can find their names is in the Jesus file. 
In fact, as I've scoured heaven and I've done a complete search, because of justification, there is no record anywhere that he was ever a sinner. Tim Hellman! Alonzo Pia! What did I do? They were terrible sinners! There is no record anywhere that there was ever a sin. It's an act of declaration, justification, you see. It is God's action pronouncing the sinner righteous in his sight. Therefore, since we have been justified, there is therefore now no condemnation for anybody who is ever in this chair who's now in Christ. Don't you like this file? Is your name in this file? Huh? It doesn't get there automatically. And Paul said, because it's in this file, we don't go and sin. God forbid that. But I just really, really like it that when God tries to find my name in the sin file, he can only find me in the Jesus file. Named as a co-heir. One who's been bought off the slave block, brought into the house, adopted, given the full rights of son and of equal inheritance, and the very righteousness of Christ is identified as my righteousness in the Jesus file in heaven. I think that's a pretty good gift. I think that it doesn't really matter if you have an artificial tree or a real tree or any tree or what's under the tree. I think that the gifts that were in the manger are what it's all about. What do you think? Let's bow in prayer. And so it's your turn to respond. Some need to recognize these truths for the first time. Do you know you're a sinner? And by faith, have you accepted the free gift of God's salvation, admitting your sinfulness, believing that Jesus is the Christ by faith and that your sin is covered by his blood and all of these things that are parts of our salvation? It's up to you now. No one can do that for you. If God is tugging your heart and opening your mind to these truths, respond. Admit your sinfulness. Put your faith and trust in Christ alone today for your salvation. And then some of us who've been saved forever, we need to reawaken to these truths, don't we? And we need to to have a whole brand new season of worship this Christmas because of those gifts that were in the manger represented in Jesus, the Lord saves. And all that's wrapped up in his salvation. And trust me, I've really done a pretty lousy job of explaining it, and I've barely scratched the surface. And it's still marvelous. And so some of us old stodgy Christians better wake up and realize what privileged people we are and quit moaning and groaning and learn what it means to really worship the newborn king. Are you saved? Are you a worshiper? And so, Father, continue to teach us and grow us and challenge us, I pray in Jesus' name.